0: and it's just taking bread with one another and loving each other deeply where they just can't wait to gather and just call upon God and that's all they gather for is just, just because they know that, that he hears their voice and they gather just to break bread and they're in tears thinking about what an honor it is to be a part of the body of Christ and, and they're gathering because they love each other and they, they, they couldn't wait to give gifts, supernatural, spiritual gifts to pour into each other and where people actually love the leaders and the leaders serve the people and like it really can happen. I mean, I I dream of it and I believe that uh, uh, because it's what God wants more than anything. When I read this book, it's like, I really believe he's disgusted with the consumer mindset and how when we go to church, if You know, it meets all of these expectations of ours rather than we're gathering as the church because we love each other, because you're my brother, you're my sister, and I want to serve you. I want to give to you. Be an honor to to bless you in some way. And and let's figure out how to reach our neighborhood and and serve them. Let's get the gospel out there to believe that all of you have this power and we're just raising people, maturing them and sending them out to share the gospel in their workplaces or overseas, everywhere. I believe this can happen. I believe it's starting to happen. And we're seeing these movements in other places in the world. I'm just going, why not us? And so as you come to the end of this, I hope you don't just jump into another study now and go, okay, now what do you want to do next? But that you seriously consider what is God calling us to do with the bride? It could be that you gathered a bunch of friends to go through this series together and God is looking at you and saying, is this a church now? Are you going to become a church? Are you going to pursue everything that I've called the church to be? All I'm asking you to do is take this so, so seriously. Remember what I said in that first week about how we don't want to put limitations on what we are willing to sacrifice for his bride. Again, now that we're at the end, once again, surrender everything saying, God, anything, anywhere, any amount of money, any amount of time, any amount of suffering for your bride, start there and then say to the Lord, what would you have us do?
1: Okay, so we're going to um, jump into what's called the afterward how many of you read the afterward did do did you read that one? Sometimes people just stop at the end of the book, but afterwards and epilogues are huge. so um, so this is this is the first time let me let me back up for my life. Let me back up. and um, the first time I really um, process this what he's talking about here because I really think if we don't get this afterward, if we don't understand what he's saying here, all the rest of it becomes academic. You, you, it's a it's a futile exercise. And so I was sitting in a church service in 1995, and I was a youth pastor, and, <clears throat> and uh, my pastor's preaching, he's preaching about the tares and the wheat. And basically the uh, the tares and the wheat, or the wheat and the weeds, a tare is a weed. Um, he's talking about, you know, you can't tell when you first when you look across a field and the field starts growing at first you can't tell the difference between the weeds and the and the wheat it, it all kind of looks the same it's all green small it's all that kind of thing and then he talks about but as it gets as it gets taller the weeds actually grow a little faster than the wheat and then the weeds start becoming more noticeable that that's a whole message within itself but but he's sitting there and he's, and he's talking about this and I'm and I'm thinking through there was a bunch of um, not a bunch i was handful of people in that church that were just, man, they were just problem people. They just just attacked everybody, messed with everybody, that kind of thing. And I'm sitting there in my head thinking about these people and, uh, you know, kind of thinking and praying, um, God, I hope you speak to them. I hope they're listening. I hope they get this, you know. And then my pastor said, if you assume that you're not a weed because of whatever, because of your place in life, because of your um, uh, your pr- previous walk with the Lord, your Christianity, how you grew up in the church or whatever, your your money, whatever. And he names all these things. He said, if you assume that you're not a weed because of those things, so that's probably uh, proof that you're a weed. And as as he started into that, I was sitting there thinking to myself, God, these people really need this. Um, these people really need this, and as as a youth pastor God, you know you know I have a heart that they know this, you know that kind of thing. And as he's saying this, I, the Holy Spirit really convicted me and said that that mentality, that arrogance will destroy you quicker than anything else. that what I talked about some Sunday that spiritual arrogance will destroy you quicker than anything else what what makes you think? You're better, whatever better is, however you qualify better. That's the, that's the interesting thing about people is we would qualify this differently. However you think sets you apart to be better than everybody else uh, or, or somehow exempt or something, yeah, that's, that's where the danger lies. The, the only thing that makes us anything is the blood of Jesus. The only thing that makes us something is the fact that Jesus loves us enough to die for us and make us right with God and cover us and forgive us and wash us. That really, truly is the only thing that, that, um, that makes human beings something. Now, that, that's, if you go all the way to that statement, that's me saying that. Scripture says it makes you something in God. But I just, I know I've said this before, and it sounds like a negative thing, but I really don't think this, I don't mean it negative is I just don't think people are anything without the blood of Jesus. I don't I don't trust people. I don't I don't think people are, are special. I don't think I, what makes you special is the fact that God designed you. That's what makes you special. What makes you what makes you something on the planet is the blood of Jesus Christ forgiving you and pulling you into God. Anything else but that and you're just you're just human flesh. You're just there. You can do great things, you know, that's not what I'm talking about. That's a total different subject. But I'm saying that this this mentality that we get that I'm worth, you're worth because of Jesus. That's why you're worth. That's why there's something. That's why you're important is because of Jesus. And I do believe that that we're very important, but we have to have the blood of Jesus to make that reality, to, to, to accomplish something that's more than just human, more than just limited physicalness. We have to have the blood of Jesus to be able to help us do that. And so um, w- one of the things that I, I try to do, I mean, I, I'm just like anybody else. I can get caught up in, um, in uh, I'm all that and that kind of thing, you know. Um, how my grandmother used to say all that and a cup of coffee. This was, this was like um, 50, 40 years ago before all that became a term. My grandmother was using that when I was a little kid. You think you're all that and a cup of coffee. I don't know where the coffee comes in. I mean, I like coffee, and Kate likes coffee, but um, but I don't know where that comes in, you know. So uh, be careful. Be careful when you start, anytime the Holy Spirit is doing something, or be careful when you start thinking in your head somebody else. They they need this. They need this, whatever the case is. So this is what he jumps into in this last part of it. And, and he says a great statement at the beginning. He says, you know, um, I really believe that, that um, humility uh, is the key to all of this. He said, but interestingly, if you try to talk to people that are, are arrogant about humility, they don't get it. He said, so what I want to do is talk to the, the people that are really striving for humility and help you deal with people that are not humble. I, I love that his approach. approached that. I think that's a great approach. And part of the reason is because... Um, being a pastor, that you have to deal with that a lot. You, ha- you really have to deal with, um, with, with people that think Jesus created them specifically to tell you what to do. And you just have to deal with that. And so he, deals, he talks about this, and he goes to James chapter 4, verse 6, and he said, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. When, when he says he opposes the proud, he's specifically saying God is working against you. God is working against you and your plans and the stuff that you're doing if you're one of the proud. But if you're humble, he, he's walking with you in this. He is, he's going to, to, um, to, to bless you, cover you with his grace and those kind of things. And so he says here as, uh, on page 200, as I started to write, however, I realized that this rarely, work, rarely works. Have you ever tried to convince a proud person of his or her pride? <laughs> Yes, I have. Um, I don't do that nowadays, so it's uh, it's futile. And then he says, some of you have run from your calling because you don't want to face the attacks. I've seen that many times over the years. Statistically, I've I've talked about this. Statistically, all pastors, all all ministers that start out in ministry, 80% of them will not finish in ministry. Over 80% will not finish in ministry. Well, there's a few reasons. There's a few major ones. Probably a lot of little ones, but a few major reasons. And and the number one reason why ministers drop out of ministry is because of attacks from people. That's the, that's the biggest reason, attacks from people. Second biggest one is burnout. It's work, work, work. And, and, um, and there's a lot of things to burn out. Sometimes you don't feel like you're getting there. Sometimes you don't take breaks. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff like that. But, but um, attacks from people and burnout are the biggest things. He said, it's a lot easier to tear down a building, building than it is to build one. It's grueling, but the church is worth it to, to build something, to do something. I think I mentioned this a few weeks ago. One of the, one of the sentences in scripture that's always kind of been like on a personal thing for me um, that Paul says, is he says, I don't, I don't want to build on somebody else's ministry. I want to go where there is nothing. I love that statement. Um, I haven't really totally been able to do that, uh, but but I have had opportunities that are that are presented that are those kind of opportunities. In fact, we were talking about this as as a staff the other day, and we we're talking about uh, we were talking about the last chapter and, and home churches and church planting and all these kind of things. and uh, I've always had a desire to to um, recreate. Uh, the church, church at Briargate I did this in my last church But to recreate the church somewhere else Or what somebody else would call mother a church or plant a church Okay um, But here's the thing with me is I don't want to do it Where everybody else is doing it I don't want to go down the road And plant a church across the road From two other churches that, that has never made sense to me The only reason we would do that Is because of pride I want my idea of church to be recreated. I want my legacy to be recreated. Right? My ministry. People need to be a part of my ministry. I, why, why do that across the road from another church? I, I've never understood that. Unless, unless we really believe in division and silos and those kind of things. But I do have a heart for planting the church. We're doing that right now in India. We call that Church of Briargate East. Right? We're trying to do that. It's a completely unchurched area. Well, here's been my passion. I did this in our last, last church, and I learned probably a lot more what not to do than what to do. But we did this for about four years. And I want to do this in the future. I, I don't have a vision for it yet. I mean, I do, have, I do have a vision for it. We don't have plans. We don't have strategies. or whatever. It's just something in my heart. Is um, go to rural places... In, in starting in eastern Colorado, go to rural communities that don't have a church. And by the way, there are lots and lots of those. We started doing this, oh, this was 15 years ago, when we started doing this in, in um, our last church, and we took our staff, we took a team of people, and we had them split up, and we went different places, and we just drove through little communities all over eastern Colorado. Weeks and weeks and weeks we did this. And you'd be amazed at how, and our, and our, pri, our uh, criteria was there could not be an evangel, well actually our first criteria was there couldn't be any church at all, including Catholic church within a 40 mile radius, or we were not going to plant the church. Our second level of, of strategy for this was to go back in some of those places to have a Catholic church, but that's it, and, and plant a church. But at first it was just any church. And uh, we found a dozen cities within a few weeks, easily. You can just almost every, every uh, small rural community in Eastern Colorado does not have churches. They used to, 20, 30, 40 years ago, but most of them have dried up and blown away. And so to me, I, I like this mentality. I like this idea of let's do this, recreate what God is trying to do with us. But here's the key for it, is it has to be built on what God desires, and not an arrogant mentality. But a humility that says, God, what do you want us to do? Okay? Now, I know know I'm lumping a lot of probably very good ministries that do this into the same category. But I really believe that a lot of churches, when they plant other churches of themselves, they're they're not doing it to reach lost. To me, the, the easiest criteria for that is that they plant them right next to healthy churches. That's not reaching the lost. That's trying to take people that already go to another church into your church. Move where there are lost people that there's not access to the gospel. Same reason we do our missions. Our missions focus is um, 75% of our missions is going to be to least unreached or people to do this. Okay, So when we're looking at how do we establish a church, how do we do this? In the next two weeks, we're going to talk about some of the things with suffering, some of the things with... Um, Uh, really intentional uh, priority of of pursuing Jesus and things like that in relationship to some of this stuff. But he goes over this and he says, um, arrogance is the biggest thing that will affect the church. John Bevere has a book called, I think it's Bait of Satan, that he says the number one problem within the church is offense. People being offended. Why do we get offended Because of pride and arrogance. They're not the same, but they do go hand in hand. The reason that people get offended is because they choose to get offended. You cannot offend somebody unless they choose to let you offend them. The the offense is their choice. Even if they're trying to offend you, even if they're trying to offend you, if they actually get offended, it's because they've chosen that. <clears throat> this is the way I used to explain it to my kids. When they were little and they'd come home, um, my daughter was the worst about this because she's a girl. But, uh, but they'd come home. So-and-so called me a name. What'd they call you? Poopy head? Do you have poopy on your head? <laughs> you know, no, then what does it matter? What does it matter? Now, it's, it's hard to have, a, to really get that into a seven-year-old's heart. You know, it's really difficult. But to try to say, what does it matter? It's either true or not. You decide whether you're going to embrace it or not. Those are two things, true or not, or you decide whether you're going to embrace it or not. And, then I, and so I would, tell them, I, I would tell my kids, Um, I got a phone call from Fred. He lives in San Francisco. He said, you're a poopy head. So? Well, I thought that offended you. I thought that hurts your feelings. Well, I don't know Fred. So it's not the actual term that's being used. It's not the description that's being used. There's other details. Who it comes from. Which means now there's emotions involved. There's relationships. Those other stuff. But you're the one deciding whether or not it has effect on you. You see what I'm saying? We all know that intuitively. But it's interesting how easily we we can get offended. Why? Because of pride. Because of arrogance. Well, no, it's not pride that makes me get offended. It's because they said something mean. What does it matter unless somehow it actually is affecting you which you're the one who's deciding that. That means somewhere there's a pride that has been offended. There's there's a, 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 a an arrogance inside that says, what, they don't have the right, or that was mean, or whatever the case is. That's your decision. It comes from pride, it comes from arrogance. And and I do believe John Bevere is right, that <clears throat> the number one thing that that hurts church is offense. Not not the number one problem outside the church for the church, but the number one problem inside the church from the church's offense. And so he breaks this down and really tries to, to process this humility thing. He says, if we can humble ourselves and learn to absorb rants graciously, our best days can be ahead of us. God wants the church to be the one institution that loves authority. And there's the key. Authority. We're getting worse and worse as a, as a society in a general sense of dealing with authority. Just authority in a, in a general sense. Now, <clears throat> I've talked about this before. What is always going to be your biggest challenge in life? I heard words. Mm, I don't hear words anymore. What is always going to be your biggest challenge in life? You're like, I'm not answering. You're going to tear that down. It's you. Your biggest issue in life is always going to be you. It's not going to be... Society today says your biggest issue in life is what? There's three or four options. Government. um, Society. Society's out to get you. Prejudice. Your biggest issue in life is prejudice? Is that really your biggest issue in life? Prejudice? Think about what I'm saying. It doesn't matter what color you are, what your ethnic background, it doesn't matter any of that kind of stuff. Prejudice is from everybody to everybody. There's no people group that's not prejudiced against. That just doesn't exist. Prejudice is something you decide whether it affects you. You decide that. Nobody can, nobody can hurt you with prejudice. I mean, unless they hurt you physically, they can't hurt you with prejudice. But you can allow that to hurt you because somehow you have been, you're allowed to be offended. I don't care what anybody thinks about me or my Native American background. I know I don't have a lot, but I have some. In fact, I ordered one of those Ancestry.com things. Pretty excited about that. I'm thinking it's going to be two or three major categories. Native American, Suave. Um, I don't know what else. I'm pretty sure those two are going to be there. American, is that a category? Did I say American? I mean Native American. My great-grandmother was Cherokee, full blood. So, there. So, who, who cares what anybody thinks? I don't. You, cho- you choose that. Nobody else can. You choose that. That's true. I don't, she was not a princess. Oh, okay. <clears throat> I knew her. She was not a princess. <laughs> um, she, she died when she was like 98. So I was, I, Lynn and I were already married when she died. Or, or right before we got married, I think. She died. She was not a nice person. Her husband was an was a amazing man of God and planted churches all over the South. And he would plant them, and they'd start growing, and she would get them run out. <laughs> she was not nice. <clears throat> I don't know why I was, so don't ask questions, Michael. It's, it's derailing me. Um, but you're the one who decides whether you're offended by something. No, nobody, can, nobody, can make, nobody can make that happen for you. You have to learn to humble yourself. Because Why? The church needs to be an example, and I think he's right about this. The church needs to be an example of people that love authority and voluntarily submit to authority, submit to accountability, submit to mentoring, all of these kind of things, that we voluntarily submit to these things. It doesn't matter how old or young or how long you've been a Christian or not or whether those, those are irrelevant. Every one of us needs to be submitted to authority in our life. We need to We need to have... Have somebody that is speaking into our life, one of the basic things that submission to authority does is it is it um, minimizes potentially helps minimize um, arrogance basic human arrogance that rises up within all of us pride, submitting yourself to other people potentially not always but, but potentially. Helps minimize that because if you're constantly submitting, it's hard to be arrogant. It's hard to have that prideful thing going on because if they're if they're really good accountability partners and really, there are going to be times when they recognize those things that they help chop the edges off. Don't 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 be that way. That kind of thing. So, um, he he talked about this guy that that um, he says I heard someone in the church say I love being under the leadership of the elders. He said that was so weird to hear. The sentence above it, he says, when's the last time you heard someone refer to leaders as gifts, a gift that you, that you have, God has given you a gift in your life. Now, <clears throat> I, I believe very strongly that we ha- that God gives us potential relationships that help knock the edges off of, in our life. I've said this before. I know everybody thinks I'm making a joke and I say, this is not a joke. I, I believe this. I believe that the, the best relationship that you have to, uh, to be sandpaper in your life is your marriage. Your spouse should be sandpaper in your life even when she's not trying to. You understand what I'm saying? I accidentally said she. She should be sandpaper in your life. Um, he should be sandpaper in your life. But just, just because, why? Just because they're different than you. That's the, that's the very basic starting point. Because they're different than you, they're automatically going to look at different things. You're going to process information. all these? You could go down all this list. That automatically um, um, restricts you being this completely free spirit to do whatever you want to do. Not that it's bad to do what you want to do. That's not what I'm saying. But being married automatically demands that you have to submit to something. And there's a lot of ways that people do it. Sometimes they just fight. Instead of submit, they fight. Um, sometimes one of them just becomes the, um, the giver-upper, right? When, when I'm, when I'm uh, doing pre-married counseling, I, this is one of the things that I'll talk about with couples is one of you is the one that always... Well, most of the time, but sometimes, probably always, be the first to apologize. In every marriage, one of you is the first to apologize. Why? Because you're always wrong? (laughs) Um, Yeah, but if you're always the one that would be first to apologize... It's not a right or wrong issue. It actually has nothing to do with the actual issue. It's because one of you, that's your personality. You're the, you're the more giver-upper. Okay, It's a conflict issue. It's not, a, it's, not an, it's not about the issue itself. It's about the dynamic. One of the people in the relationship is the stronger personality. By the way, that's not, good, that's not bad. I, I'm not trying to attack that. One of you is the stronger personality. One of you is not. Um, every now and then, you come across a relationship, like Lynn and I, where we're both alphas. You understand what I'm saying? I mean, I am the more submissive one, but <laughs> we're, we're, both, we're both very strong personalities, very strong personalities. That's great most of the time, not great sometimes. Well, the dynamics of that, you go into a, into a, any group setting, you get more than three or four people, and, there's, and all of a sudden you start having different relational personality dynamics within that concept. Some people are going to be a lot more offensive to other people without even trying to. They're not trying to hurt somebody. Not trying, it's just their personality. They're a strong personality. They're kind of a run-over-you kind of personality. We have to learn how to interact in these things. We have to learn how to to submit to each other. Remember Ephesians 5, 21. So 22, 23, 24, 25. That, uh, wives submit to your husbands. Husband loves your wife. But the verse right before it says wives submit to your husbands says submit to one another. We're all supposed to submit to one another. I submit to you. You submit to me. Now that looks differently in, in every single setting. Every single um, concept. Let, let, let me break this down like this. Um, as a pastor, my responsibility is to serve you and to submit to you. But that doesn 't mean i 'm going to let you take over a service when i 'm speaking. There's still dynamics there's still directions we 're trying to get to there's still goals that have to be uh, had that doesn 't submitting to somebody doesn't mean you let you let them run over you that doesn't, that doesn't mean that okay so he goes into that just a little bit <clears throat> he says um, he 's talking about uh when we're submitting to authority, he says this kind of submission is often viewed as weak and degrading in our culture. Yet this is the example of Almighty Jesus. You know, kind of the, the cultural mindset today is, who are you to tell me, or how dare you, or that's my right. Society, maybe societally, maybe it is your right. But remember, as Christians, we're peculiar people. We're odd. We will actually submit to a moment or a circumstance or people or a situation when societally or culturally we may actually have the right to stand up. You understand what I'm saying? And we could all easily name a handful of those. But submission says that the kingdom of God is more important than me right now. So I'm going to submit. I'm going to do this kind of stuff. It says Jesus was a humble leader and a humble Follower, there was nothing weak about his humility. in fact, what I talked about sunday um, Jesus very strong, he had no problem getting up in somebody 's face but again this this is kind of as the church we do this backwards. He gets up in the face of uh, pharisaical mentalities or religious arrogance or things like that, but he doesn 't do that to the to the sinners and and, and i 'm not saying our church is like this i don 't think we really are that much but but Sometimes the church says, we're going to get up in the face of the sinners and let the church people do whatever they want. They can gossip, they can backstab, they can do whatever they want. We're going to attack the the non-Christians. That's exactly the opposite of who Jesus was. He never attacked the lost. He never attacked the sinners. Never. He held them accountable, but in a very graceful, loving kind of way. But he did get up in the face of the religious he did get up in the face of the church. And so we've got to make sure that as we're submitting and as we're trying to do this, that we're getting the balance right, not the cultural norm, but the spiritual expectation. Okay, he says, <clears throat> um, when you, when you um, try to minister to negative people, okay, with, with humility, he says, this won't ensure growth in their lives. It does not do that. When you come across prideful people or arrogant people or just nasty, mean people, when you embrace them with love and humility, it does not necessarily mean they're going to change. But it does mean you grow. There's a lot that comes for you from this. You, you, you grow deeper. You mature. You understand these kind of things. When you allow yourself to retort or something like that, you, and, and every one of us in here, we're all guilty of this. There's times when you really handle things mature, right? And then there's times when you're like, what, who, who is this person? Why don't I do this? L- Linda's uncle, he, they're about, he's about 15 years older than I am. And uh, he was telling us a story one time. He's a good godly man, really truly. And now what I'm about to say, you're going to like, how godly is he? But I'm telling you, he's a really godly man. He really serves God. He loves God. He he loves people, all this kind of stuff. But he, he was telling us one time, this was, this was probably 15 years ago. He, was, he, he lives in Houston. He was driving down the freeway in Houston. This guy cut him off, and then they pretty soon they're, you know, they're at each other in their cars, you know, honking or you know, trying to cut each other off. You know how road rage gets, right? He said they stop in traffic because it's bumper to bumper. They stop, stop, he jumps out, the other guy jumps out, and they start fighting on the freeway. And he said he had the guy in a headlock just going to town on him. Right? And all of a sudden he had this tap on his shoulder and he stops and turns and looks and there's this young pregnant woman and she said, Sir, can you please stop hitting my husband? And he said he has never been more convicted in his life. He said immediately he lets the guy go, hugs him, asks him to forgive him. The other guy guy starts crying, hugs him, asks for forgiveness. Now, so... 20 seconds before, you got two dudes duking it out. Now they're both hugging and crying each other, with each other. <clears throat> I think the whole thing is weird. But how, how easy is it for us to get caught up in those kind of things? How easy is it for us? I, I, I've done this a handful of times. I'm not proud of this, but this is just one example. Um, we were, I was driving in our minivan, and that was the beginning of the problem. <clears throat> I'm a pretty cool guy driving a minivan. And this guy comes racing up in a Porsche convertible and cuts me off and turns real quick and almost makes me wreck. I I, I run over into the curb kind of thing. I'm like, it's on. So I just follow him. This is through like a parking lot of a big uh, grocery store, strip mall kind of thing. And I just follow him. And our van had a pretty decent motor in it. And so I'm following him. and, and And then he realizes I'm catching up to him. So he starts running from me, and I'm chasing him all over this parking lot. My kids are in the back. My wife finally says, and I've told you before, when she says this, man, it irritates me. She said, "Um, Pastor, (laughs) when she says it like that, she does not mean, Oh, spiritual leader from which I gain wisdom and direction. That's not what she means. And my kids, when she says that, all of a sudden, you know, everything was kind of zoned in. I couldn't hear anything. I, couldn't, I was just zoned in on this little red Porsche. I'm going to take that dude out and whoop his rear right there in the parking lot. And that's all I could. And as soon as she said, oh, pastor, I realized all, everything kind of drops. You know what I'm talking about? You, all of a sudden I hear my kids are in the back seat like, get him, dad, get him. I didn't realize they had been yelling this. What? Whipping, dad, get him. You know, I'm like, oh, what, what am I doing right now? How arrogant am I? But it was the Porsche. He was younger. You, you know what I'm saying? And, and I'm realizing, I, I mean, I stopped the van and I apologized to my kids. I apologized to my wife. And if the dude would have stopped and walked up, I would apologize to him. I never did catch him. <laughs> but guys, it's 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 amazing how quickly we can let our arrogance and our pride rise up, take over, and it consume us. I mean, it it it's like um it's like your blood. You know, we, we say your blood boils. It's like hot liquid inside your body. To the point for me where I literally couldn't hear my kids. I couldn't hear my wife. Anything. All I could think about was that guy. That's pride. That's just flat-out arrogance. And, and it'll destroy you a whole lot more than it destroys somebody else. It'll mess with you the most. And when we, when we really try to interact with people in humility, it helps us the most. When we really push that down. <clears throat> um, and then he goes into this next step, which I thought was pretty interesting. He said, reasonable people do not aid your growth... In the same way arrogant people do. Right? Now, there's none of us that wanna go through difficulties. There's none of us that wanna deal with arrogant people or conflict or any of that kind of stuff. But you grow during those times. When everybody is singing happy birthday and being nice, you don't grow during those times. You grow when somebody is challenging or somebody's getting up in your face. And, and here's when you, I think you grow the most, is when you know they're flat out wrong. But you still deal with them in grace and humility and love. But you know they're wrong. They're just wrong. So do you tell them that? Maybe sometimes, maybe not. I think every circumstance is unique there. But, but you have to deal with them with the right attitude. You have to. Okay? Um, if it is when we love those who slander us that we demonstrate the love of Christ. Um, he says, a mistake I have made too often is to respond to pride with pride. Specifically, like I say, when you know they're wrong, we have the right to deal with them. I have the right to fillet them. But, but we don't. Now, sometimes you have to do that. But, but you better make sure that you're doing it because of the biblical model and because of the Spirit of the Lord is saying that. Because if not, it's just you dealing pride with pride. Okay. Um, <clears throat> he, he says, he, he does this uh, scripture, uh, he, re, he, he gives a scripture in 2 Samuel chapter 16, um, and it's talking about David is leaving his, it's when Absalom comes to try to take his kingdom and David just runs away, and this guy comes up and he's throwing rocks at David and, and yelling at David and doing all this stuff, and uh, um, Abishai is saying, why don't we go kill this guy, why are you letting him? Why are you letting him do this? And um, he he says, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more may this Benjamite, Benjaminite, leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. That's a very unique way of looking at this and, and a very um, humble and biblical way of looking at this. David is saying, this guy is, is ranting and raving to me. This guy is cutting me down. He's saying all this stuff. He might be right. God may have actually told him to say this stuff. I, I, I've tried to go there. To, I mean, I have gone there sometimes legitimately, but I've tried to go there other times, but in the back of my mind, I'm saying, but he's not really. God didn't tell him to do this. But, but I say out loud to people you know, let's, let's show him grace because we're bigger, we're better. We're not going to be brought down to that level. And in my head, I'm like, but if I catch him away from these people that are watching me right now. You understand what I'm saying? We can verbalize it, we can say, it, but David is truly saying this. He, he is very truly saying this. This guy might actually be right and the Lord may have caused him to say this. And then he says, and maybe God will even bless me if I don't do something. And maybe God will even bless me because I'm dealing with what he's saying in humility. That is a great mindset. That is a very difficult, mature mindset, but that's a great mindset. God may have actually told him to do this. God may have actually said this. Linda and I have had those conversations many times over the years. When, when somebody starts picking on you or things happen, you have, to, you have to train yourself. It's not natural. It's not easy. You have to train yourself to stop and say, what can I gain from what they're saying? Even if they're just a jerk, God can use jerks to speak into your life. You've got to be able to say, okay, is there anything that they're saying that's legit? Is there anything they're saying that I can get out of it. Maybe 90% of what they're saying is just them being a jerk and trying to attack you, but there might be that little sliver of something that they say that resonates in your spirit that the Holy Spirit may be trying to tell you through that. As this is very difficult to do, to be able to separate those two things, okay? <clears throat> All right. He says, but as leaders, we need to set an example of humility And avoid the trap of becoming hypocritical. What I was just talking about, about saying one thing, thinking something else, your heart something else, all these different things. Make sure that what you're doing, you're doing the best you can with the power of the Holy Spirit to not be a hypocrite about what's going on. Truly, truly try to be, um, try to think to yourself if Jesus is standing right here beside me, would I do anything different? Would I, would I say something different? Would I do something different? I mean, I, I've tried to use that as an exercise for myself at different times. If Jesus is standing right beside me, what do I do? Um, it'll be different. It'll be different. I, I'll give you another one. This is, this is kind of off subject, but this is a good thing, too, with this, is um, if you're married... A lot of times, if you say to yourself, if my spouse was standing right here, would I say or do something different right now? And you can take that into, you know, you can even take that into fidelity. You can take that into moral attitude or whatever. If my, if my wife, if Linda is standing right here right now, am I talking to this person like this? I'm saying morally. You understand what I'm saying? You can take that down a bunch of roads. What if my spouse is standing right here right now? What if it's an attitude or something else? Would I say this with my spouse? Now, here's something you got to be careful of. I have also thought that when Linda and I have talked about something ahead of time and we're both on the same page and I know she's got my back and somebody comes and attacks me, sometimes if I think to myself, if Linda was standing here right now, I'd go at them. She's got my back. In fact... There's been a couple of times, not to go into big detail, but there's been a couple of times over the years, more than a couple, where a, a confrontation or something has happened and I've had to look at Linda or give her one of those, you know, kind of things because you, you guys have never seen her like this, but don't make her mad just saying and specifically about her husband or her kids she will go at you take it outside how about that she'll do it okay there said that really has it in years okay now, now here he says something else, and this is, this is interesting because I don't totally agree with the way he's framing this. I understand what he's saying, but, but look at what he says. In the same way, if you even have an ounce of humility, it is only by the grace of God. He blessed you with it. If we truly believe this, then it makes no sense to be angry at others for not having received the same grace. Thank God for any insight, wisdom, or humility has graced you with it. Quickly forgive anyone who's has hurt you and pray by God. Pray God by his mercy would open their eyes. I understand what he's saying, but I think he's leaning too close to a, kind of a um, the sovereignty predestination mentality of God. I don't think grace happens just because God gives it to you against your will. Do you understand what I'm saying? You choose whether you're going to let the Holy Spirit give you humility. You choose whether you walk down that path. It doesn't just happen. Now, as we are pursuing humility and grace and maturity and those kind of things, then when you're presented with a a moment or a situation or whatever, yes, you do say, God, thank you for this grace that I am extending, because it doesn't come from you, but you still have to pursue it. Grace doesn't come from you. It comes from the Holy Spirit. Humility doesn't come from you. It comes from the Holy Spirit. But it does not happen unless you pursue it. And so that's where your free will is involved in this. That's where your choice is involved. Okay, so let's look at grace and mercy by asking the question. Because when I say grace, I usually mean both or or variants or one. I don't use the term mercy very often, but I use grace interchangeably. So somebody tell me, what's the difference between grace and mercy? What is grace first? What's the definition of grace? Say it again, Sam. Grace is receiving something that you don't deserve, and mercy is not getting something you do deserve. Right? You should be punished. Mercy says you're not going to be punished. That's mercy. Grace is blessing, giving. Something that you just don't deserve and then God comes along or, or somebody else and they, they give you something. Um, and, and I'm not necessarily saying tangible material although I could include that. Okay? So as people of grace to somebody else, we are, ex- we are blessing them. We are giving something that they don't deserve. Whether it be kindness or love or whatever. If we extend mercy to somebody, they have wronged us they do deserve it, but we don't do anything to them. Okay? Um, for relationships to work, you have to have both. For marriage to work, you have to have both. You have to have grace and mercy. And you have to be extended grace and mercy, too. Right? Did that, that answer good enough? you. All right. <clears throat> Now, then he, he goes into a different, on page 280, switches, and he says, okay, we are called to love proud people, but there is a time to put your foot down. There comes a time when you just, some, you just have to do something. And, and I believe this is as much of a grievance that I have against church thinking and church mentality as much as anything else is I've just watched for, for all my life I've watched where mean people are allowed to be mean people in the church and nobody will stand up to them. That's just as bad as n- not being nice to people that are sinners or something else, right? We're supposed to love and embrace people that, that uh, um, need to be forgiven. But at the same time, we're supposed to stand up against jerks. We're supposed to do that. And there's actually a biblical explanation three different times in the New Testament, very specific, other times vaguely, but three very strong places in the New Testament say this is how you deal with people that are mean, that are, that are intentionally ungodly and spiritually arrogant. This is how you do it. And the church does not do a good job of this sometimes. He said there has to be times When you put your foot down, Titus chapter 3, as as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Cut him off from you. Get him away from you. By the way, this also is very important in personal relationships, one-on-one relationships. Sometimes you have to say to people, you and I are not hanging out anymore. You and I are not friends anymore. As a Christian, you can say that to somebody. As a Christian, you better learn to say that to some people. If you don't, you're going you're to train wreck somewhere along the way. You've got to put your foot down at certain times and say, this is not okay. Now, your marriage is not one of those. Okay? You cannot cut them off of you and send them into the desert. All right? They're married to you. You have to figure it out. But some relationships, you have to learn how to say enough's enough. He said, um, you have no more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Many churches have been destroyed because leaders are unwilling to confront and remove divisive people. Now, be careful if you go to a church where that's talked about a lot. Okay? If you're, I know one of the things that I, I hate when I hear ministers say this, I hate it, is when they say, well, God's pruning in our church. How often does he do that? I hear people say that regularly. If we just look at natural cycles of life, you prune a very little bit once a year. You understand what I'm talking about? Usually, when I hear ministers say that, now now sometimes they're actually legitimate, that's actually a true thing. God does do that. Most of the time, I think to myself, no, you're just not dealing with the issues. You're just either too strong or too weak, you're not dealing with the issues. If God is constantly pruning, constantly pruning, <clears throat> when is he growing? When is he developing? <clears throat> Some fruit needs to grow. Okay? <clears throat> he said it's not that we're, and, and when I read in verse 10 where it says we have nothing more to do to, with him. He says it's not that we're condemning him. The passage states that he is self-condemned, meaning he has done this to himself. I've dealt with this at different times over the years where, um, believe it or not, <clears throat> I'm going to say this. My wife will back this up, okay? <clears throat> if all you ever see of me is, is speaking, you're going to have a misconception of how I really interact and process certain things, okay? <clears throat> Excuse me. My, <clears throat> Tim, can you do me a favor? I have a drink right there. <clears throat> Um, my natural, the, the way people think, <clears throat> oh, it's a big one. Thanks, Tim. <clears throat> because I have a strong personality and a strong preaching style, sometimes people think that that's how I deal with relationships, and it's not how I deal with relationships. In fact, I've said this before, the, uh, <clears throat> the, I, he got me some. thanks. Um, I've said this before, if you, if you talk to our board, you can talk to all of our board right now. Every single one of our board members will tell you this. You can talk to any board members I've ever had in the past of my pastoring. They will all say the same thing. I let a lot of junk go more than I deal with it. And it's not because I'm scared of confrontation. not scared of confrontation. In fact, the reason that I let a lot of things go is because I am so not scared of confrontation that I might... Be bringing it a little bit, and I know me. I know me. I I said this. I said this recently to our board. I'm probably about to tell you more than I need to because you might use this against me later. <clears throat> I'm what I call a juggler, not not that juggler vein. No, not not no, <laughs> not that. Good clarification. Um, Juggler vein. In other words, and this goes back to my past, but if we we get into a fight, I'm not going to disable you and move away. It's not how I think. You understand what I'm saying? Okay, I'm about to go there with you. I'm going to beat you down until there's nothing. And I'm not going to quit until way past when I should have. And I have to fight that. I have to fight that, fight that, fight that. I've done that with my wife. I've done that with my kids. Not physically. <laughs> I've done, well, with my kids, sometimes I've spanked them too hard because I'm letting anger guide, right? And, and there, you, you have to deal with people with grace and humility. And so I overextend that more than I don't, and it, and it actually causes more problems. I've had to fire people over the years. Not a lot, but a few times over the years, I've had to fire people. I've always waited too long. I've never fired somebody early or on time, ever. I always fire them about nine months or a year too late. And it hurts them, and it hurts those around them, it hurts the church, hurts a lot of things. God has actually called us to stand up against people sometimes and to do the right thing because it's the right thing. And sometimes that means the individual has to deal with the pain of being pushed aside or ostracized or fired or something else because you have to do the right thing biblically. This is what, I, I've had these conversations with other pastors that struggle with this. It's not easy for people to have to do things like this. And what he says here is very important. You're not doing it to them. They did it to themselves. They did this to themselves. I, I, there's a lot of new language we use in today's culture that I think is cheesy, but it's, it's apropos, I guess. Um, in fact, Linda was giving me a hard time about one of these today. When you're going to ask somebody to not do something anymore... We say things nowadays like, I'm going to release you to do something else. What? That's such cheesy language. I'm going to release you to find a better path than near me. That's what you mean. But we use terms like that. That I, All that stuff just drives me. Just tell them what you're saying. Just say it. You need to go away. Just say it. I'm going I'm to help you find... Um, You're perfect fit, because it's not where I am. You know what I always hear when somebody says that? I hear that old, I I saw it in a movie or something, I don't remember where I saw it, when you're going to try to break up with somebody, it's not you, it's me. Oh, whatever. Unless you qualify that. It's not you, it's me. Me doesn't like you. Then it's legit. Okay. <clears throat> most people believe it is unloving to ever remove somebody from the church. In the name of compassion, they refuse to obey Scripture. This is not compassion. It's rebellion. That's huge, guys. That's huge. Huge. Okay? let um, see. I'm just going to see. All right. And this is good, too. He says there are already too many misguided people in church who boast about being a safe place because they let people gripe and complain to them about something or people or circumstances. That's called gossip. You're not a safe place. I was, I was sitting at this lady's house one time, and um, Lynn and I were young, we were youth pastors, and there were some people in the church that absolutely hated me. I know you guys are like, what? but I mean, they hated me, hated me. And they were doing everything they could to, to get me out of there, all kinds of stuff. And um, we, we went to lunch with these people. In fact, it's the only time we ever went to lunch at their house. And um, we're sitting there, and her phone rings, and she gets up and answers the phone. And, and I, we only hear her side of the conversation. She says, yes, uh-huh, uh-huh, right, okay, my ear is not a trash can, so I'm going to hang up on you now. And I was like, I never heard anybody do that before. And she sat down like nothing happened. She starts eating, and I'm like, what was that about? Can you tell me? She said, I will say one thing. It was about you. I was like, you go, girl. I don't even care what they were saying. i never heard anybody do that. Just cut off gossip. Not like, you know, let's talk about this later. Let's pray. I can't stand that one. Let's pray about this. That's... You're just being a wimp. Tell them, shut it. That's what you should say. It's, if it's gossip, just shut it down. Just shut it down. I'm not going to talk about this. That's the godly response. Not, you know what, I'm, I don't necessarily agree with you, but tell me more. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right, I think, uh, one more last thing, and I want to end it with this. He says, any mistreatment I have faced is an absolute joke compared to the horrors Christ endured. And you know why he endured those horrors? Because of my sin. Christ goes through, through horrendous stuff because of my sin, and then I get upset when somebody offends me. Somewhere we got to put that into a good, healthy balance. Let's look at that. Okay, anything, any comments, stuff? I went through a lot of stuff. Any, any comments, questions, observations, critiques? Better be careful critiquing me after all that. Well, so here's a simple way to process this. This is the way I process, because I think you're right on track. Do you think Paul, let's start with Paul, but you can pick any, pick Peter or James, because they were like the head of the church in Jerusalem. Do you think they went to a group of people meeting, called a church, part of the church, and said, you know what, we would like to have another church in our house, can some of you come along? Do you understand what I'm saying? Well, I might have thought that because they went to the tavern and they went to the
2: synagogue and they went there on, you know, and then, and then they set up this other meeting time on the Lord's Day and they weren't even there. And so
1: it seemed like maybe they did, but now I don't know. So. Okay, and another, uh, let's go to another part of Scripture. In Acts chapter 2, Peter gets up and says, how many Christians were already um, existing in Acts chapter 2 that we know for sure? At least 120, right? Okay. Were they all meeting in a building together? I don't think so. I think they were probably spread through a few homes. Peter gets up and, and preaches this great sermon, and at the end of Acts chapter 2, all the people say, Peter... Uh, what do we do about this? And he says, repent and be baptized. And then it says 3,000 were added to the church that day. 3,000. Where did they go? Where did they have church? There wasn't a mega church they could all go to. There was only about and, say fifty, if we, if we push that, 150 people that called themselves the church at that time. That was the total existing church In the world. About 150 people. So they didn't have enough homes to do that. So what happened? Those 3,000 people immediately started having people in their home. These people had no clue. They had not been saved except minutes. And all of a sudden, you've got hundreds of churches all over the area. Now, did... Did like Peter and James and people provide leadership? Sure, guys. They they started with lost people, and there was a church. And I do believe I, I believe Michael is 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 getting to the place where, in my thinking, we all have to get to somewhere. Is if you're going to start a Bible study, don't start it with people in the church. Maybe take one other couple in the church just to give some good balance and and and, and teaching and sharing and stuff. But start it with people in your neighborhood that don't know Jesus. Start that kind of Bible study. See, in our heads, if we say, I'm going to start a small group of Bible study, we always think church people. We're wasting. We're wasting energies and gifts and talents because we're all doing the same thing. And then 10 years later, we're all still meeting together, but we've gone to somebody else's house or it's this different. And then 10 years later, we're all still meeting. When do we say, wait, I have gifts and abilities and I'm going to help disciple the lost. And then I start a Bible study in my home with lost people. I start a life group. I start a, a, a hamburger thing. Okay? We, we call our Thursday night, which we're doing tomorrow night, we call it Grillers. And it's, it's uh, food and prayer. It's specifically designed. I started something years ago called Grillers. A couple guys in our church had come to us and just got saved. Both of them had been saved weeks, not months, weeks. Both of them came to me and said, hey, we want to do something. We've been talking to each other, both, I mean, a couple of weeks, Christians. They said, we've been talking to each other. We thought maybe we would start a group at our house where we just grill a bunch of food and invite our friends. He said, not church people, friends, which was unique because they were brand new Christians. Church people weren't their friends. And he said, we're going to invite our friends. And we started doing that and we started having <coughs> quite a few of these because it got too big. We were in 50, 60 guys coming to grillers. So we started, different guys started doing grillers at their house. And basically it was just bring meat and we'll talk. And eventually we're probably going to talk about Jesus. That was cool to me. That's the way it should be. Let's start a small group doing what? Doesn't matter what you're doing. Just reach lost people and talk about Jesus somewhere in the process. Okay? We've gone over and I can't breathe. All right. <clears throat> so how how are we going to pray? How are you going to pray right now? What are you going to pray about? How are you going to pray about this? <clears throat> okay. Good answer. So <clears throat> this is this is one of the basic prayers I think we need somewhere. You've got to figure this out for yourself, but somewhere we've got to go here. Let me go back to what I said at the very beginning. God, help me not just to assume I'm not a weed. Don't let my pride and my arrogance make me assume I don't need to repent or whatever. Help me to be humble. Help me to be a person that, that seeks after you and your instruction and your uh, discipline and help me to submit. People, authority, those kind of things, right? Yes, sir. That has absolutely nothing to do with what I was talking about, but that is, that is a very good idea. But I pray about that. Okay. <laughs> that we will all go to Morocco someday. How many would you would take a mission trip to go see Tim and in in Morocco? I would. I would. I love Moroccan food. Rabbit and cinnamon? That's Moroccan, isn't it? <clears throat> All right. So let's pray. God, we ask you to open up our hearts to to truly let you, Holy Spirit, investigate and get in and 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 look at who we are and convict us and change us. And God, I pray, I pray that I will not let pride guide me and arrogance guide me. Lord, I pray for your divine, supernatural help with that. That, um, God, I will be submitted to you. And, uh, Lord, submitted to you only. Not not submitted to people first, but submitted to you first. And then out of that, my submission to others flow. God, we ask you to pour your spirit into us. Pour your spirit into our our hearts, our minds, our lives. Let your word get in and combat the, the junk, the stuff that we have to deal with combat the arrogance that, that seeps up in our spirit and our life. And, uh, and God, we pray that just across our church. Just, Lord, help us to be a church that truly loves you and loves people and doesn't let our pride get in the way. Doesn't let our, our, our self, our flesh, be offended. But God, help us to, to just pursue you, just pursue you, and then reach the people around us. And uh, God, we thank you for this. We thank you for this. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. God help us go to Morocco. Amen. I do have some things that are that are kind of